1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Professor Brian Hooker. He's part of Simpson University, and we're going to talk about uh, an analysis of health outcomes and vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and other issues. So Brian, thanks for coming.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It is uh, great to be on your show. I have looked at some of your other guests and I consider it an honor to be counted among them. I also want to include just in in terms of my background that I am currently chief scientific officer of Children's Health Defense which is the organization that's headed up by Robert F Kennedy Jr that is very concerned about children's health and issues like vaccine safety, 5G, GMOs, the environment and so forth and uh, I've just started in that role and I'm very excited about that. I'm taking a brief sabbatical from the university for about a year. So I can work directly with Children's Health Defense.
2: Yeah, no, that's excellent. Yeah, I've, I'm familiar with uh, with some of the issues that CHD is, you know, working on, and uh, they are working on really important issues. Tell me about how you ended up working with CHD, and what's been your background in medicine?
3: Well, my background is actually in biochemical engineering, and so I've been a biotechnologist. I I got my PhD back in 1990, and I've been in the biotechnology industry uh, ever since, both as a researcher at a national laboratory and as a university professor. I got very involved in medical epidemiology and especially epidemiology around vaccine adverse events because of a personal event in my family my my own son who is now 23 years old was injured by his infant vaccines and he was injured rather profoundly he has very significant developmental delays and so i started on this quest back in 2001 to understand more about what is being reported regarding vaccine adverse events and what is not being reported. And so, you know, I've, I have actually started publishing on my own with some other independent researchers and uh, doing epidemiology. I'm self-trained in epidemiology, but I've been doing it, you know, now for about 20 years and started publishing uh, fairly prolifically starting in about uh, 2013. Oh I'm
2: sorry to hear that about your son. Yeah, vaccines for some reason they seem to become a, uh, a political weapon. You know when you look back on the history of vaccines and various legislation around it, why has it turned into what it's turned into? Why has it become this political weapon that is is browbeating people into uh into using it? At any cost.
3: Well, I think that's a really good question. You know, I ponder that myself and ask myself why. And really, there is it's starting starting in the what's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which was enacted in 1986, that made it illegal to sue pharmaceutical manufacturers for vaccine injuries. And that's been amended several times. There were several loopholes that were then closed uh, back in 2011. And now it's it's impossible if you have a vaccine adverse event to sue a pharmaceutical manufacturer for that, you know, for liability there. It's, it's essentially a liability shield. And since that time, vaccines have become very, very lucrative for the pharmaceutical industry. A vaccine that is approved for the infant and child schedule based on the CDC's recommendation starts with sales at about a billion dollars per year and goes up from that astronomically. You know, the vaccination industry is about, in the United States alone, is about a $50 billion industry And that's going up significantly with the advent of the different COVID-19 vaccines and the massive sort of population-wide uptake. So it's really, really big business. And when you look at pharmaceutical industries, historically, they haven't been interested in the best health for, you know, the citizens and residents of the United States. They've been interested in the bottom line, and that is how many vaccinations can be administered, how can we increase uptake of vaccinations, And so it becomes a very, very contentious issue where you're standing on the parent side and you're looking at this expanding vaccination schedule for your infants, childs, adolescents, now adults. And you're wondering how safe are these? How effective are these? How have they been tested? Have they been tested adequately? And there are a lot of question marks in the minds of parents and practitioners and researchers like myself and but we're having these essentially forced down our throats in various different ways including mandates including things like vaccine passports, which have been enacted in states like California and New York that actually limit your behavior if you're unvaccinated, limit the access that you have to large events if you're unvaccinated. And so you're right, absolutely right, that this has become a very politicized and very contentious issue.
2: I mean, do people not see if you are forcing something on somebody and you're saying it's safe and effective, yet you can't sue the companies that make it and they make all these rules that, you know, it has to be done and it has to have, I mean, do most people say, "Hmm, well, they wouldn't have done that unless it's really important or does that arouse suspicion in people?
3: I believe right now we're at a time, Richard, where this is arousing much more suspicion in people. And if you look at the uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine, President Biden wanted the um, uptake among adults in the United States to be at 70% by the 4th of July, which was yesterday. And he he did not achieve that. Um, People are saying no to the vaccine. And if you look at adults that qualify for the vaccine, only about 58% of United States residents that are adults have taken the vaccine. And I, I saw a very recent poll in terms of how many people among the adult population in the United States would identify themselves as in some way shape or form anti-vaccine which is sort of a loaded term itself but the the polling said that fully 22 percent of those polled would identify themselves as anti-vaccine and that's a real growing number and I think that with the COVID-19 vaccine you're, you're seeing all these different adverse events you're seeing Uh, myocarditis and pericarditis and heart problems in adolescents, healthy adolescents that have never had a problem now are coming down with heart problems and dying of heart problems because of the vaccination and with the pharmaceutical industry overplaying its hand on essentially an unapproved product, it's only been approved by an emergency use authorization, so it has not gone through FDA approval, then you see that the pharmaceutical industry and the government complex that is being controlled by the pharmaceutical industry is overplaying its hand, and people are starting to wake up finally. What would be?
2: That's a, you know, I don't even want to ask, but what would be a further over overplaying of the hand? Would it be that you know the military would mandate everyone has to get vaccinated, or like what would be the next level? You know, I think that the next God level of this.
3: I think that the next level of overplaying of their hands would be mandates nationwide on this vaccination and a further curtailing of, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights based on vaccination status. You know, we do have the right of peaceable assembly, but now in states like California and New York, they're taking that away if you're unvaccinated. And they're putting more and more restrictions on the unvaccinated portion of the population just to sort of coerce them in vaccination. And I have heard rumblings. I have not confirmed this. I have heard rumblings that the military is going to mandate COVID-19 vaccine, either the two series for the Pfizer and the Moderna or the single vaccine for Johnson & Johnson.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests transcripts of podcasts you're interested in the ability to request specific topics or guests and more visit finding and click support us today. Now back to the show.
3: And so that really, you know, that would further the overplaying of their hand. And I think more and more people Uh, You know, there have been walkouts at hospitals and hospital uh, corporations who have mandated vaccines. They've had employees just up and quit and or, you know, threatened of being fired. But people are are sacrificing their jobs and saying my health is more important. I do not want to take this vaccine. I do not trust that this vaccine is good for me. And so, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right that as more and more mandates are foisted upon us, then more and more people are going to start to wake up and really look at this closely and look at you know sort of the the conundrum that you're in when you take an unapproved product where you have a complete liability shield if you're injured what do you do so why are all these um, corporations and hospitals
2: and schools and all that why are they all i don't know is is there enough information out there should anyone choose to look about the actual safety and efficacy of any given vaccine especially the covid ones or are they just towing the line are they not looking like what why is this happening
3: well i think that there's a backlash you know if you listen to the official talking heads in the government if you look at Look at individuals like Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and, you know, the different people, you know, the director of the CDC, her name eludes me right now, but the different people that are recommending, you know, massive uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19, then, you know, they're They're saying things that are just not really true. You know, the COVID-19 vaccines as approved have not been tested and not been shown to prevent transmission of COVID-19. And you're having individuals who have received the vaccine who are coming down and getting sick with COVID. You know, so the, the vaccine is not preventing what it's supposed to prevent. But yet, if you listen to the talking heads, they will say the absolute opposite and say that we have to achieve a certain amount of coverage, whether it's 70% vaccinated, 80% vaccinated, 90% vaccinated in in order to reach this level of what's called herd immunity in order to contain and control the virus. Well, herd immunity is not going to happen when you have a vaccination product that doesn't prevent transmission of the disease. It's It's a fallacy, but I believe a lot of these hospital corporations are listening to the talking heads taking what they're saying which is absolutely not the truth but taking it as gospel and then you know really really stamping down and really really clamping down on individuals who refuse to the, take the vaccine you know we're being told one thing by the federal government and by the individuals who are supposedly handling this pandemic but the truth is absolutely something quite different and if you go back to the approval documents or these different vaccines, when these vaccines were granted emergency use authorization, you'll see they don't prevent transmission. They don't prevent spread of the disease. So what
2: what do you think a given university sees when there's a huge protest or hospital? Do they just say, shrug it off, all right, we got to fight harder? Or are you seeing any surprising pockets of Resistance or waking up?
3: There have been some mandates at the university level that have been overturned based on protests, based on walkouts, based on civil disobedience. And that's been good. You know, there have been letter writing campaigns, you know, in order to get philosophical exemptions from university mandates. I can't, I don't want to go into the individual universities and university systems but i do know that even in the state of california now you can you know there are ways that you can exempt yourself from the covid-19 vaccine requirement where those ways did not exist and it's partially because of of a strong letter writing campaign partially because of litigation that has occurred and so you know there are some entities that are are looking at you know these protests looking at these people who are refusing to get the vaccine
0: if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
3: And they're, they're starting to come around. However, there are hospitals and hospital organizations that are not, that are just, you know, basically saying we close the door on anybody who will not get the COVID-19 vaccine. I live in a small county in Northern California and very, very early on, the county said that they were going to mandate the flu shot for all healthcare workers this was prior to the covid-19 vaccine and there was such an outcry from the medical community saying no i don't want to get a flu shot no i don't get a flu shot as a matter of course i don't approve of them i don't think that they're uh, appropriately tested and the and the county that i live in actually backed off and said no we you know we we our our requirement that healthcare workers receive a flu shot. So it can work, you know, if there is an outcry.
2: That's good. When people fight back, things can get done.
3: Exactly, exactly. I I never wanna discourage somebody from fighting back in terms of taking something and ingesting something into their body that they don't feel comfortable with because it's not properly tested or maybe it 's uh, due to religious reasons because some some of these materials are, are derived from aborted fetal tissue, you know regardless of what the reason is, then we should have autonomy over our own bodies on what we put in it and and we shouldn 't have to be told by the federal government and mandated, you will put this into our body. I mean, that really violates the Nuremberg Code.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. In reference in your bio that you've worked with unvaccinated populations, how does anyone find them? I mean, I would think that they need to be like in a witness protection program, TAC. How do these people exist and live to be, you know, 20, 30 with zero vaccines and where are they? You know, I don't want you to reveal it, but I mean, how how do you find
3: these people? No, I love the way you phrase that. You have to make me laugh that these are people that are in witness protection programs. What has happened is individuals, you know, I've done research. I've published, oh, probably 13 or 14 papers in epidemiology specific to vaccine injury. And I've had practitioners, you know, physicians and other individuals contacted me and said, you know, in my practice, I'm friendly to unvaccinated families. I don't, I won't kick out a family in my medical practice who is not vaccinating. And you know, maybe they they go to public school and have some type of exemption from vaccination. Uh, maybe they go to private school or homeschool. And uh, so you do find these pockets of children. And I published two such studies. The first study came out in May of 2020 in the journal Sage Open Medicine. And in that particular study, I think I had about 600 unvaccinated children. And then I have just recently came out with a new study last week in the Journal of Translational Science where we also had unvaccinated children. And in that, in that particular study, again, we had over 600 children who had never received a vaccine But yet we're old enough to receive a diagnosis of, say, ADHD, autism, allergies, ear infections, gastrointestinal issues, and so forth. So um, they do exist, these, these pockets of unvaccinated children, and they do exist nationwide. I've, in my first publication on which I would consider a comparison of vaccinated and unvaccinated children, we looked at three medical practices in the United States. And in the second publication, we also looked at three different medical practices. So I know of at least six medical practices in the United States where there are pockets of unvaccinated children.
2: So you would think that, you know, based on all the propaganda that these children would be horribly sickly and most of them probably wouldn't make it to adult adult age because uh, they didn't have any vaccinations. But what do you actually observe?
3: What we observe is that looking at specific diagnoses that are made by medical professionals, the unvaccinated children are healthier, okay? And I want to frame that in the context of the diagnoses that we've looked at. We've looked at the rate of uh, the incident of developmental delays in vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. And children who are unvaccinated have about two and a half times less diagnoses of developmental delays. We've looked at allergies and asthma, and the rate for allergies and asthma is around six times. So if you look at the vaccinated population, they're six times more likely to get diagnosed with allergies and asthma versus an unvaccinated child. For autism, the rate of autism in the unvaccinated is about five times lower than in the vaccinated population. And then for things like ADHD and ear infections, the rate is the rate that you see in the vaccinated group is over twenty times higher than that of the unvaccinated group. And when we talk about ear infections, these are chronic ear infections. Individuals who may have three ear infections or more over a rolling twelve month period, and then also ADD ADHD is relatively unseen in the unvaccinated population. There are a few cases here and there. But in the vaccinated population, we see that it's about 20 times higher. And so given that context, we're seeing that the unvaccinated children, when you look at chronic disorders, disorders that are not necessarily the infectious diseases that we are protecting against in vaccination, the unvaccinated children are much healthier.
2: Yeah, that's some of those uh, comparisons are amazing. 20 times lower. That is correct. Five times. I mean, yeah, that's insane.
3: It is lower. You know, we, we did test... And we want to see if vaccines were preventing the diseases that they're supposed to prevent. And in general, yes, that is happening. The last paper I did, we looked specifically at chickenpox. Individuals who are fully vaccinated were 10 times less likely to get chickenpox compared to those that were unvaccinated. Unvaccinated children are not protected against chickenpox, so they're susceptible to chickenpox.
2: But, But in terms of the calculation of health versus lack of health, since no one appears to be, well, almost nobody appears to be studying unvaccinated people, there's no addition to the calculus of, okay, this will prevent you from getting chicken pox, but it, it increases your risk of ADHD or other problems 20 fold. If people knew the real calculus, they would probably say, uh, I don't know.
3: Right. No, I appreciate that comment. You know, when you look at the overall health, and it's something as a parent, I've been screaming about to the authorities since 2001. My son was vaccine injured in 1999. I started to engage officials in the CDC in 2001. We have been screaming for this type of study. And now within the open peer-reviewed literature, there are four such vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies. Two that I've co-authored with Neil Miller and then two others that were written by a researcher by the name of Anthony Mawson. And then also James Lyons-Weiler and Paul Thomas recently published a similar study. So there are four studies that are showing the same thing, that unvaccinated populations in terms of chronic health issues are healthier. But what we want is we want the CDC and other federal agencies to open up their databases to independent researchers so we can look at this on a large scale. The CDC has a database called the Vaccine Safety Data Link that has records for over 2 million children in it. And some of those children are unvaccinated. I know that because I have been in the database myself, but I have, you know, since 2016, I've been barred entry from the database. And so we cannot get in there and do this type of study, even though we have these compelling data sets now, you know, that are smaller studies. That show that unvaccinated children are healthier. So, you know, every day I pound the door of the CDC to see when they're going to open up that database and when we can look at the effect, what is the effect of the entire vaccination schedule on children?
2: Could you do like a FOIA request to demand the data or no? I did
3: a FOIA request of the entire, what's called the vaccine safety data link, which is the records of 9 million patients, approximately 2 million children. I did a FOIA request back in 2009, and I was told that the data were not available and that I would have to go through a very arduous process that would cost me personally about $100,000 in order to get approved to access the vaccine safety data link. I did embark upon that process. I did work with two other scientists who were given access, but that access was appropriate inappropriately and very abruptly rescinded in 2016. You know, uh, the researcher that I work with, one of my personal heroes, Dr. Mark Geyer and his son David Geyer, they received a letter in 2016 barring access to the vaccine safety data link, and you know, and basically saying, we don't like the results that you're publishing. They're showing that unvaccinated children are healthier. And so, you know, we no longer have access and there are no independent researchers that currently have access to that particular database.
2: Can you get your access restored or just all doors are closed to you right now? Like what's happened when you tried? tried?
3: All doors are closed. We are pursuing some legal remedies. But quite frankly, you know, I've been in this battle since 2001. I get tired And and I also don't have inexhaustible financial resources, but it's something that we are interested in in children's health defense. You know, it's one of the reasons why I've published on these smaller data sets using practitioner data from different medical practices is to at least force the issue and then force our way back to open the VSD. So, So my shorter answer to this is it's still in the works. You know, we're working in the background to do that. It is a very, very onerous task. And, you know, I don't have a whole lot of hope that we'll be able to get into the database into the near future.
2: So do you think with the, uh, the huge push for COVID vaccines, do you think that's, it seems like it's waking up more people, but do you think that that push is going to overwhelm the current state of vaccination now and make it even, even more draconian? Or do you think that forces will push back and they'll reset things, maybe back to a more reasonable level? What are your thoughts?
3: My hope is that as the COVID-19 pandemic wanes, that a lot of this will go away. But unfortunately, the COVID-19 vaccine is extremely lucrative. It is made in these companies in the United States that have received approval from these vaccines, they have made five of their chief officers billionaires. Okay, All of a sudden, overnight, Because the COVID-19 vaccine gets approved, five of the executive officers in Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson become instant billionaires. And so, you know, this type of money talks and this type of money is addictive. Somebody that becomes a billionaire overnight wants to stay a billionaire. And so I think there's tremendous pressure by the pharmaceutical companies to continue the push for COVID-19 vaccines. And now COVID-19 boosters, you know, that they're going to come back. You know, the the thing that I envision, you know, in horror is that the COVID-19 vaccine becomes a yearly vaccine like the flu shot. And, you know, once it's then fully FDA approved, which will be somewhere in 2022, 2023, then it will be added to the schedule. And the thing that scares me about this is that the number and level of vaccine injury that we've seen from the COVID-19 vaccine is unprecedented. You know, the COVID-19 vaccine is overwhelming all the databases that are used for reporting vaccine adverse events, namely the CDC's vaccine adverse events reporting system is being flooded with you know there have been over 400,000 reported adverse events to covid-19 vaccines in the United States including 6,000 deaths and this is you know it's unprecedented it's it's overwhelming the system it's you know if you look at historically the number of vaccine injuries that have been reported versus covid-19 fully 40 to 50% of all recorded vaccine injuries in the history of Records, you know, from 1990 to present, fully 40 to 50 percent are all due to COVID 19 vaccines. So lots of people are being hurt by these.
2: If you look at it in terms of uh, percentages, you know, I'm sure some people will say, well, 100 million people have been vaccinated, supposedly, or however many people. So it's a low percentage. But compare the actual percentage of injury or death to other vaccines, what is it?
3: The comparing the actual Uh, rate of injury and death, if you look at COVID-19 versus childhood vaccines, the rate of injury that's being reported is over 100 times more for the COVID-19 vaccine versus, say, like the chickenpox vaccine or the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or the haemophilus influenza B, the Hib vaccine. You know, we are over, you're, you're seeing the rate of injury that's over 100 times more. And you're also seeing, you know, untested technologies like the messenger RNA technology that's being used in the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. It had never been used prior to COVID-19, you know, so all of a sudden the United States population becomes the test subjects or the Guinea pigs or, you know, these untested vaccines And they're finding that the messenger RNA persists in the body for a much longer period of time and it migrates to the organs and it is causing a significant amount of damage because it encodes what's called the COVID-19 spike protein. And the spike protein literally will cause clotting, massive clotting, and also access into cells and tear apart human cells directly. And it will do this in the organs and you're seeing a lot of organ failure, adverse events due to the COVID-19 vaccine, including heart failure in adolescents, which is the new, you know, that, that's the new frontier. We want to get the vaccine approved for adolescents, which it has been, and then also for small children. Okay. So it's causing yeah, this insane amount
2: of, yeah. what they're going to do is, oh, how could we make the vaccine better for children instead of who oh, we shouldn't have given it to children? I know what they're going to but- do. It's so what do you think there's going to be long-term effects for these all acute problems with the vaccine?
3: I think you're going to see both acute and long-term effects from the vaccine because the, the, the vaccines themselves encode for the spike protein. And the spike protein is, you know, it, it's, it mimics the same spike protein that sits on the actual COVID-19 virus. And that spike protein causes organ damage it will it will disrupt tissues it will by gaining access into the you know the human cells directly and so i think you know what we're going to see is chronic long term damage in individuals that will you know come down with multiple organ failure or multiple organ damage including the ner- neurological system there have been a lot of reports of things like bell's palsy which is a facial type of palsy that affects one half of the face, you know. This can be transient, but it, it can also be permanent. It can be a long-term, you know, paralysis. Also, there have been many reports of a syndrome that's much like polio, called Guillain-Barré syndrome, and that's another nervous disorder. And there are many, many reports of this due to the COVID-19 vaccine. And then there's a there's a whole litany of issues that involve the heart and the circulatory system because the spike protein clots blood. It will initiate the clotting process in the circulatory system where clotting is inappropriate. And so I I think, you know, what we're seeing right now is the tip of the iceberg and we will see a lot of long-term damage Uh, associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. Well, based on the
2: current vaccine rate, at what point do you think the long-term damage effects will spike?
3: That's a really good question. It's really hard to say. And the thing that is frustrating right now is we don't know, you know, the, the entity that controls the reports that we're seeing a vaccine injury is the CDC. I've been investigating the CDC since 2001, and quite frankly, I don't trust them. And so I think, you know, there are probably many, many more deaths and many, many more injuries that are going unreported, either the practitioners or the patients themselves are not reporting these injuries to the CDC, which, you know, is a recommendation, it's not required by law that these be reported. And so I believe that there's a lot more injuries out there and a lot more deaths out there in the United States then what, you know, what the database, the VARES database is letting on to. And I also think that there will be some level of backlash, you know, probably two to three years down the road, because a lot of these individuals who have been injured by these vaccines are going to be looking for compensation. And right now, the compensation for these vaccine injuries is supposed to come through the federal government, but the federal government is going to be flooded with claims that could bankrupt us over, over many, many times. And so, you know, as these claims come to fruition, and as more people make federal claims of vaccine injuries, then, you know, that's going to be two, three years down the line. And then, you know, that's, that's when there's going to be a monetary drag on trying to, you know, compensate these individuals for these injuries. If somebody has a lifelong injury, how do you compensate them? You know, do you, you give them $200,000 and tell them to go away what do you do and right now the current system is not equipped to compensate individuals for their vaccine injuries you know children go to what's called vaccine court or the national vaccine injury compensation program in the United States which is a no fault program where you don't sue the pharmaceutical manufacturers you're just saying that i i was injured I don't hold the pharmaceutical industry liable in this particular case, but I do need compensation for my injuries. But there is not a good program to handle the COVID-19 injuries. And so I think that two or three years down the line, when these people are demanding compensation, then we're really going to see significant backlash and we're going to see And more and more people will then start to realize and come forward that they were injured by these vaccines.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, don't you think they'll just be ignored and they'll try to sweep it under the rug? Like, at what point does resistance seem to actually have an effect from your observation?
3: Well, I would not underestimate a small group of individuals that can make a lot of noise. You know, it's it's very difficult. You, You know, you raise a really really good question about being ignored and. In the United States, the mainstream media turns a blind eye to vaccine injury. I've seen that, you know, in my own workings with the media and trying to publicize, you know, I I come up with, come out with studies like the Vax Unvax study that I just published in the mainstream media, you just hear crickets, you know, there's, there's no interest on this. They, they don't want to talk about unvaccinated children being healthier. You know, that's something that they're not going to report because so much of their revenue for commercials comes from the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, the media is not going to report it. Government officials, if you go the legislative route, many government officials receive lots and lots of soft money from the pharmaceutical industry. So there won't be a congressional investigation into vaccine injury. You know, I say that with a with a, a glimmer of hope that some congressmen and senators will step up and start to look at this, more seriously. But, you know, in my lobbying of Congress, it's never happened. So really our last bastion is the courts. So, you know, this type of thing, if you look at the organization that I'm with now, Children's Health Defense, we enter into a lot of legal battles where we do sue entities, where we do uh, find, you know, find them, hold them accountable for vaccine injury, including the federal government, including the pharmaceutical industry, and, you know, even though there is a liability shield, there's still ways that you can sue and you can make them at least admit to these injuries that are happening.
2: So what do you think the, um, you know, the future holds for, for the battle over vaccines in the next few years, the next 10 years or so?
3: That's a really good question. I, I believe that, you know, I have a lot of hope. And I believe that, like I said before, and like you reiterated, that the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, sort of the industrial complex between the pharmaceutical industry and the federal government has overplayed their hand with the COVID-19 vaccine. And so when we have a critical mass of 22 people, 22% of the population who now identifies themselves as anti-vaccine, then you can achieve a lot more than you can with one or two percent of the population, maybe where their ch- children were injured by the Infant and childhood vaccination schedule. And so I have a lot of hope that these issues will be overturned, that there will be unanswered questions where people will demand answers. And I really think that the last bastion in order to accomplish this is the courts. And as these court cases come to fruition and as individuals are being held accountable, you know, if a state mandates a vaccine and somebody gets injured by that vaccine then the state should be held liable for that injury. They were mandating an unsafe product in the first place. And so this is the basis for legal action. And I believe as these legal actions become more publicized and cannot be avoided by the mainstream media, then I have a whole lot of hope for the future. My hope is also that these draconian mandates will be overturned, that people will be very, very loud, in their own state legislatures, where these some of these mandates are being decided at the state level, and things like vaccine passports will be banned, you know, across the nations, many many state legislators um, have already enacted bans on vaccine passports, and so you know we're seeing traction in you know some states like Alabama, Missouri, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Ohio, who have enacted legislation to ban vaccine passports. Um, so as this spreads, I have a whole lot of hope for the future on that, you know, but my, conversely, you, I always am looking over my shoulder and you have to be wary, even to protect my own family, you know, how are they, how are they going to, you know, will they tie vaccine mandates to social services for my son, you know, who is developmentally disabled, will they tie this to tax benefits Will it be tied to my employment and so you always have to be looking over your shoulder in terms of these types of mandates and how the mandates can sort of squeeze the living daylights out of you until somebody concedes and they get the vaccine or they get fired or they lose benefits or whatever.
2: What do you think will happen with places like universities, let's say, that, that mandate them, and then a significant number of people get injured? Can people go after the universities, if not the, uh, you know, the manufacturers of the vaccine? Are they protected? or
3: The manufacturers of the vaccine are protected. However, that liability shield can be taken down through legislative action. But I believe 100% you've keyed in on something very important, that these universities, if they're mandating an unsafe product, then they can be held liable. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why some universities have backed down is that when an attorney writes a letter and says, okay, you mandate this vaccine, if my client is vaccine injured, we're coming after you, then that type of action talk. And so, you know, I, I'm glad to say my own institution is not mandating the, COVID, mandating the COVID-19 vaccine. It's made it uh, optional. Okay. You know, they are recommending it. But you do not have to. You do not have to get the vaccine to attend here at my university. And what we're also finding is some students are leaving universities because they don't want to get the vaccine. So they're transferring to other universities that do not have the mandates in order to avoid that per- vaccination. So people are actually voting with their feet.
2: Even recommending though. Essentially, it's the practice of medicine. I don't know, or is that a 2 weekend argument? You know, if a university recommends and someone gets a vaccine and gets injured, well, they recommended it and they're not a medical facility. They're not a doctor.
1: I think you
3: have a really good point. I'm not an attorney. So, you know, I, I don't know how this plays out in court. You know, the, the I do not take lightly what I say As a scientist, because people are going to make medical decisions perhaps based on what I say as a scientist. And so, therefore, you know, recommending an unsafe product to me is treading on really, really shaky ground. And so, even making, you know, a specific recommendation or recommending something just because the CDC says it's safe or the FDA says that, oh, it's approved by emergency use use authorization, I think. I, I think you have a very, very strong point there.
2: Well, very good. Brian, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and about Children's Health Defense? Where should they go?
3: The the best thing to do is go to childrenshealthdefense.org. It's just all one word, Children's Health Defense. Dot org and um, then check out there, there's a daily newspaper called it's an online newspaper called the Defender and you can just click on the Defender from uh, children's Health Defense main website and you can get up-to-date information, you can get up-to-date information on what I'm publishing. You can get up-to-date information on what's going on with the COVID-19 vaccine and other issues that involve specifically children's health. And then also, if you want to see my latest paper, uh, the best thing to do is just Google the Journal of Translational Science, and then go to Impress Articles, and you'll be able to see the article that I just published with Neil Miller. But I do highly recommend ChildrensHealthDefense.org. They, it's the the site is updated with a whole set of new articles every day. And you know, it's, it's taking into account the tally of things like COVID-19 vaccine injuries. And it's a really, really good place to stay up to date.
2: Excellent. Well, Brian, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
3: You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure, Richard. And Godspeed to you and what you're doing in, in telling the truth and um, not avoiding people who might seem a little controversial like myself. I do appreciate the interview.